Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural and the just plain weird. Today we are going to continue our series exploring the history of witchcraft, with a particular focus on its overlap with the treatment of women generally. So we spoke a little last time about the social and literary changes that came together to form the early modern idea of the witch. With the introduction of new magical ideas and practice in the 13th century Renaissance, a new awareness of ancient gods and goddesses, as well as complicated rites and ceremonies, began to interact with religion in the form of ceremonial magic. Concurrently, unflattering female archetypes began to be entangled with ideas on the right way to practice religion. But arguably it was ancient Rome that first seeded the idea of the magical practitioner as an internal threat to society. Prior to this, magic in many forms was tolerated in a way seemingly unthinkable to Europe at the height of the witch trials. But through the ever-expanding grip of Christianity over the early modern world, the witch concept could be used to on the one hand demonise those seemingly existing outside of society and therefore less directly under control, and weaponise sexist ideas, strengthening the grip of the Christian church over everyday life in the process. But there is one more transformation that needs to happen to facilitate a large-scale hysteria and furious attack on witches the creation of the idea of the satanic witch and methods by which to prosecute and eradicate them. That is what we're going to be looking at today. This discussion is once again hugely indebted to the excellent The Witch, A History of Fear from Ancient Times to the Present by Ronald Hutton, which does an amazing job of tying together all the loose threads that combined to create this idea without simplifying it, even when it would be easier to do so. I am of course going to have to simplify a little for time, but as always, without any further ado, let's get on with it. So as we've already discussed, it is clear that around the year 1300, the attitude toward magic in Europe underwent a great change, due in a large part to this 13th century renaissance which we've already spoken of i.e. the introduction of esoteric texts into Europe in translation from Greek and Arabic texts. So they presented in some of their documents an elaborate form of ceremonial magic, which was a natural fit for the churches of the time. After all, its methods were not wholly unfamiliar. So it stressed the power of emotive words, the psychological power of talismans, sanctified and cleansed spaces. This was as much a description of Christianity of the time broadly as it was a description which could be applied to certain kinds of practised magic. Magic of various kinds had a long history throughout Europe, with varying degrees of tolerance, acceptance, and even at times royal endorsements. Magic as a concept is an ancient one, but these texts, particularly ancient Egyptian ideas, created a description for a discrete form of magic, distinct from the natural magic and herbal remedies of cunning folk, which often overlapped with potion-making, the divinatory practices of astrology and the like. It was a highly educated and literary form of magic, and a natural fit for the church. 
Although ceremonial magic may have been out of the reach of many, as literacy rates at the time were estimated to be around 25%, at least when describing those who could read the Latin the texts were translated into. Nonetheless, it was most likely ceremonial magic which started the process which will become the prosecution of regular people as witches. And the reason for this being it was its integration into the church. Of course, this was not the only reason sort of getting this process going, but as we talk a little bit more, I hope it will make a bit more sense. So this integration into the church at this highest level of religious authority and seat of learning and education meant it fell foul to 14th century Augustinian orthodoxy and basically the reinstallation of the idea that magic was inherently and intrinsically demonic. But this process was not exactly linear or straightforward. It is generally believed to have begun in around 1326, when Pope John XXII, the leader of the Catholic Church at the time, decreed that ceremonial magic had grown to the proportions of a plague and excommunicated all those concerned with it. It was believed that he may have had a personal reason to wanting to stamp out magic in this way, believing himself to have almost fallen foul to a sorcerer's attempt to assassinate him. The papal bull, Super Ilius Specula, directly stated that those practising magic could be charged with heresy. It was clearly drawing on an already familiar idea of the magical practitioner and an awareness of ceremonial magic and its overlap at times with the church. It did not create the idea of the witch, but more was part of the process by which it became not just a crime if it resulted in death, disease or harm, but a crime in and of itself. And it was the duty of the church then to do right by its people and eradicate this threat. Now there is a fair amount of evidence that not everybody felt as strongly as the Pope on the dangers of magic. After all, some successive Popes would become inquisitors and hunters of heretics themselves, but others wouldn't. The idea of magic and its potency and potential harm was a seemingly universal one, if not the drive to eradicate it. In England, for instance, to the royal families, it became another anxiety and a tool in the machinations of power and a very potent threat. To quote Hutton, five out of six reigns between 1411 and 1509 were marked by at least one accusation against somebody usually a member of the royal family, of using magic to try to kill the current monarch. So suppression of magic then, or at least greater control of it, could provide an excellent way of strengthening existing power structures and extending their grip over more and more peoples. It is no surprise then that the history of suppression of witchcraft runs concurrent to the history of the march of Christianity across Western Europe. So the foundation had been laid by papal writs. Magic was now synonymous with heresy, and anyone practising it subject to punishment. And for a while this idea bubbled up in little pockets, isolated incidents and quickly burned out, finding its most violent peak with the highest death toll between 1560 and 1640, the peak of the Reformation. So with Christianity taking over Europe, the landscape had fractured 
this time with Catholic and Protestant engaged in deadly battle. And in Hutton's words, this duality, this attitude of black and white, produced a greater willingness to perceive the world as a battleground between the forces of heaven and hell. So the line was redefined again and again between the right way to practice religion, anything deviating from it labelled as heretical, and as mentioned, the overlap between many religious practice and magic was quite slight, to be honest. So depending on viewpoint, it was very easy to label people who were practising the wrong kind of religion at that time, or the non-prevailing one, as not only heretics, but also as sorcerers, and therefore these two ideas got squished together into one. But the witch Hutton stresses in his book is not a new concept, but a concept known since ancient times, but suddenly swollen to unprecedented proportions as Satan reacted to the opportunities created by the religious division and the challenge presented by the extension of Christianity to large areas of the Americas and some of Asia. So the bubbling up of witchcraft and the prosecution of more and more witches can be seen to strengthen this idea that the march of Christianity across the world was a good thing. If you were pro-Christianity, the fact that witches and sorcerers were popping up and being prosecuted just proved that this triumph over Satan was was working. It was um, bearing fruit, basically. So it was, a, it was a viewpoint that strengthened the religious depression of dogmatic Christianity. It positioned it as a fight for souls and detractors as unwittingly in league with the devil and their vanquishing ultimately a just act, even if it resulted in the taking of lives. So this is much closer to the viewpoint of the witch trials at large. So you can start to see how this idea of the witch, this older idea, transformed into something religious and something quite blatantly weaponized. So this appearance of Satan seemingly on every corner, as Christians battled it out to win the souls of those around them, created a situation which demanded a strong religious dogmatic hand, an overbearing leadership to steer people away from the temptations of the devil. So all of this mythology and these ideas around the new suspicion of magical practitioners strengthened control and extended power of Christianity over people's lives. And as a really interesting supporting example of this, the concept of the satanic witch, although it reached many Baltic areas, did not reach Russia in any meaningful way while most of Europe was engaged in fighting over it in a large manner. So despite Russia seeming to have this kind of foundation laid, an idea of witchcraft, a suspicion of witchcraft in general, a strong cultural fear of the devil and a fairly misogynistic social structure, neither Protestantism or Catholicism gained much ground against the ubiquitous Russian Orthodox Christianity. So it did not then result in this fracturing and tussle for power between the two churches that seems essential to transforming heresy trials into trials for witchcraft. And when satanic witchcraft was eventually introduced into Russia in the early 18th century, after most of the most furious witch hunting had died out in the continent, it didn't really gain much traction. 
the introduction of this idea, interestingly, was part of a kind of modernization attempt to bring the country more aligned with European norms, but rather predictably didn't result in any meaningful witch hunt craze, as by comparison to the Reformation in Europe, Russia was fairly cohesive from a religious standpoint. So it seems like this transformation from the idea of the witch we've been talking about and its basis on existing religions and literary ideas and social concepts, etc., in order for it to transform into the witch that could be put on trial, it relied on the Christian Reformation, it relied on this struggle for dogmatic control over much of Europe. But of course, religious tolerance or lack thereof was not enough to create the full context for the witch hunting craze, in which tens of thousands lost their lives under charges of witchcraft. So the prosecution of heretics and the persecution of suspected witches are not one and the same after all, as many at the time even were quick to point out. When in the 13th century the Catholic Church developed a formidable inquisitorial machinery to detect and annihilate heresy, the holding of false religious opinions, Pope Alexander IV ruled that magic in itself should not be the concern of inquisitors. There was, as is now, a debate as to whether the practices of witches truly can be described as a religious practice. So think of the debate as to whether witchcraft represents a layover of pagan beliefs. In all honesty, the evidence that witches were organised in, in this way is very slight. There was at least an initial pushback in terms of the legal persecution of witches for a few reasons. 1. Accusations of witchcraft were often personal, involving crimes of passion and revenge, the kind of crimes that were expected in a lot of cases to be handled at a local level, not at a state level. 2. The medieval legal system made the consequences of lost cases substantial, meaning that the very nature of the crimes being often impossible to prove or disprove made them a weak basis for a case. It would seem that the legal persecution of witches ran counter to at least the early medieval legal system. So something clearly changed to bring this situation about, and it would take a judicial leader with a real belief in witchcraft and its danger to turn the tide and get the population behind them in this fervour. So there was a concurrent development in the 12th and 15th century Europe some have called the formation of a persecuting society. And this is from a book of the same title by British historian Robert Moore, a process he argues between 1950 and 1250 in which the public turned upon demographics en masse. Groups such as Jewish people, homosexuals and heretics were entangled in a process by which those in power strengthened and guaranteed their position by putting themselves on the front lines of a fight against groups believed to be harm to society at large. Now this, of course, is a process which still has ramifications to this day. These groups are still persecuting the marginalised. But could this process have created the methodology by which the witch was transformed into an imagined social threat? So from an abstract concept to an archetype 
to a description of a person who can and should be controlled for the good of all. So we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But for now, ultimately for the heretic charge to truly stick, it had to be proved that witches truly were practicing their own heretical religion and worshipping or in league with the devil. Belief in harmful magic and that people could wield harmful magic was not enough to create the conditions for a mass witch hunt, as these ideas had been around for hundreds of years under various guises, but rarely claimed more than a few lives or a few dozen lives here or there. Again to quotes, There was no sense in the late medieval attack on magic that magicians were part of an organised and widespread new religious sect, which posed a serious menace to Christianity. They were rather viewed just as individuals or small individual groups, in particular places at particular times, who yield to the temptation to gain access to normally superhuman powers for their own ends. And this again brings up the ideas of the Malaeus Maleficarum, that played on this idea of the fall to witchcraft as a giving in to temptation, a temptation which women were inherently more vulnerable to and tied in with all of these sexist female archetypes and stereotypes. So how exactly was this turned from a concept into an individual or group of people that can be hunted down in an organised manner? So the witch had to be transformed from a singular individual falling to the devil to an organised group. They were to be given a modus operandi and a target, one striking at the heart of a community and pulling at the heartstrings, relying on this strong religious and emotive response that desired strong and immediate change. And the theme that runs through later accusations of witchcraft and what a witch was said to be involves the danger to children. So this transformation is the same method by which groups are marginalised, and many scholars of folklore and history point out its workings in the history of the persecution of other groups. In specific, the persecution of lepers and Jews as secret enemies of society in 14th century France, for example, in this process preparing the way for the novel stereotype of the witch. After all, as I hope is clear by now, the stereotype of the witch as a dangerous member of society was not a universal one, or even a very old one, but a character created with a purpose behind it. Scholars on the witch hunts all seem to generally agree the evidence that women or anyone really were meeting in an organised manner and attempting to work magic, good or bad, is very slight. Arguments that witch hunts may have been an attempt to crack down on underground religious practice, particularly pagan practice, have been all but completely discredited, although the formation of the satanic witch stereotype was predicated on the drive to force the practitioners of heretical religions out as a mean of strengthening local and decentralised power. There is, of course, the issue of the huge amounts of personal confessions, detailed and persuasive, of those accused telling of their meetings with the devil and working evil magic. 
Now, were they in total belief? Were they swept up in the same machinations that caused whole communities to turn against one another? Were they experiencing then misunderstood phenomena such as hallucinations, mass hysteria, sleep paralysis or the like? Or were they in fact wielding some supernatural power yet to be understood? It is easy to look back on these times and view it all as barbaric, but there is an interesting interplay at work here between things we have touched on. These new ideas of the satanic witch and seemingly conscious attempts to confuse them with existing folk beliefs and fears to strengthen this new and flexible stereotype in a very emotionally charged way. It is quite tempting to trace folk tales and stories and conflate the similarities between them into this sort of collage which is close to the idea of the early modern witch. But as we've already mentioned, this is a flawed methodology, as to quote. In general, the trial evidence serves incidentally to expose folk reliefs, rather than folk beliefs serving to explain much about the trials. The latter were propelled and dominated instead by a new, almost pan-European concept of witchcraft, propagated by elites and accepted into general culture. That is to say that the trial records are peppered with references to already existing folk tales, but they are simply used to strengthen an idea of the witch which was circulated and fleshed out through papal writs, through inquisitorial handbooks, through other trial records. And this was an intentional process, seemingly. As deep folkloric beliefs or mythic structures mattered to the way in which the common folk conceptualise witchcraft and its purposely loose definition welcomed all kinds of local conceptualizations and adaptations and can be argued as claiming a false history through this association as something ancient, something universal, when it simply just was not. But let's have a look at a few of these embellishments now because I think they're very interesting. So there was no real Anglo-Saxon idea of the witch, but figures of the hag, the familiar idea of the malevolent old woman of particular danger to children, were conflated with this idea of the secret community of witches, and particularly of those socially marginalised making up their numbers, such as old and often widowed women. In general, though, Anglo-Saxon England tended to ascribe ill fortune to outside influences, not to other people. But it was a concept which seemed to align with this new concept of satanic witch, meeting at night in league with the devil and a danger to all. But what was new about this concept was the idea that they may present an internal social threat. Similarly, Bernardino of Siena, or Saint Bernardino, was an Italian priest and missionary who purposely leveraged a local mythological creature and aligned it with this new concept. The Strix, a demon believed to have attacked infants and drained their blood, also known as Strega or Strigoi, in various European countries. Now this bore useful similarities with the witch stereotype, particularly with its danger to children, and also a big overlap with the idea of the vampire, which we will cover in the future, no doubt. To quote, 
Bernardino identified the Strix as a human woman empowered to fly by the devil. In the process, he and his fellow reformist preachers gave a new power and terror to the image of the Strix and launched a new kind of witch hunt. Romanian, Croatian and Macedonian cultures at the time also all featured folklore of supernaturally gifted people waging spirit battles to protect farmland from fairies and devils. This idea of a spiritual flight and the idea of night roving attacks on seats of fertility such as farmland and children in particular made its way into the witch mythos with this seemingly wealth of folk history to support it. But it's believed that the apparent place and time at which the stereotype of a satanic sect of witches first appeared was in the Western Alps during the early 15th century. So this was namely in the form of the Toady case, the Ainu Valley and the Rome witch hunts. In terms of the Toady case, I apologise for my pronunciation here. Mattiocia di Francesco was a respected herbalist living in the town of Todi, Italy, and one of the first women in Europe to be tried for witchcraft and the first to be burned at the stake. It was her influence as a healer that meant her eradication could be a strategic benefit to the local lords battling for control in the region. Her death was seen by witchcraft historians to symbolise what was to come. Now, the Enua Valleys of Catalonia have surviving records for one of the oldest and largest witch hunts in Europe. A fragment of the book Ordination, completed in 1424, is the oldest Catalan legal text referring to the crime of witchcraft, and of particular relevance to our discussion is the unusual amount of women persecuted in this region, around 90% of those being accused by their friends and neighbours being women. And in this case, simply being accused of witchcraft was enough to have one condemned, with societal pressure being put on the law to pass judgement upon them. And to quote Hutton again, it was probably the largest for at least a millennium of people put to death for working magic. Local legal records show that it was conducted by petty lords who were driven by a sudden popular fear of witchcraft and that the trials began in 1427 and lasted until 1436. Those accused were supposedly responsible for a string of murders, paralysis, impotence, miscarriages, poor crop yields and sudden infant deaths. Their confessions were extracted under extreme torture and seemed to show a case of a string of natural disasters being levelled at a particular group as a form of societal revenge. That these acts were not a divine punishment or the workings of an indifferent natural world, but perpetuated by a group of sorcerers meeting at night with Satan. And it was believed that this area in particular was fertile ground for this, for growing this idea of the satanic witch from the seed of an idea into something much bigger. As touched on, this area had a blend of already existing different folkloric elements that overlapped to create a deeply unsettling creature. 
So the Mediterranean child killing night demoness blend in, in the Alps into that of the Germanic cannibal witch. But to quote, that belief system might however still have proved a short-lived phenomena had not the Alpine hunts produced a body of text to promote it. And this is one of the modern issues involved in talking about the witch hunts. In trying to disentangle the truth from texts which were themselves contemporaneous and themselves influencing the narrative of the witch as it was being written and as it was being received by others. But more than just the codification of this idea in the text that it produced, it was the mountain setting which might explain this seemingly spontaneous appearance of the witch archetype, fully formed as we expect it to be as the early modern witch. The reason being, the mountainous regions had become havens for heretical Christian sects, and in a period where neighbouring sects were fighting for power and control over a growing economy, cracking down on this dangerous societal element became the job of local lords. So local lords and friars were respected for participating in this papal drive to root out heresy, as mentioned, it was at times supported by popes, at times kind of tolerated, but rarely outright condemned. So those who were participating in this papal drive to root out heresy were respected. And the mountainous regions were specifically rich in heretics. So they were on the front line of religious evangelism and state building, again to quote Hutton. And at this particular border between complementary and fear-mongering folktales. Around the same time as Pope John declaring magic to be synonymous with heresy, Italian professor of theology Bartolus of Sassoferrato redefined the ancient terms for child-killing nocturnal demonesses Striga and Lamia to mean a woman who renounced Christianity and deserves death. So these ideas were at least in some cases consciously woven together with new religious ideas, taking existing folklore and using it to strengthen this message. But if this was all such a potent mix and designed to burst into flames in this way, why did it eventually die out? So by the late 1500s, Pope Gregory XIII ruled that limits and protocols needed to be applied to the Inquisitors to limit this madness. By his decree, nobody could be arrested simply by being named by someone else under trial. Alleged witchcraft deaths were to be investigated more rigorously and with attempts at impartiality. There was even a sense that he was aware of the psychological nature of this kind of mass hysteria, even if the concept of psychology, of course, was not known to him. He noted that suspects should be held in separate cells so as to not feed into each other's delusions. Inquisitors were to not use leading questions, and evidence used in trials had to be subjected. So this helped to cut to the heart of many of the glaring issues with the hunt, that they were perpetuated by fear and by emotion, and had a way of drawing in more and more people, and by weight of numbers becoming self-sustaining. These crimes were by definition improvable, existing outside of what was naturally possible. 
but by introducing more process, more scepticism and central supervision, it allowed a path for redemption for those accused, and instead of oblivion, there was a chance at the soul's redemption. But crucially, this change also had the side effect of strengthening local judicial control in the region. It seems to have come about after the sort of public opinion on witchcraft had begun to change. But this attitude was to spread through the Mediterranean, although not as far as northern Europe. Nonetheless, this region was spared from most of the most deadly hunts, and it can be seen as a simple step back through the process that we have spoken about, where the clampdown on heresy was extended to witchcraft. It broke the group of witches down to the individual, it attempted to explain their workings by natural means, and distance it from some of the emotion surrounded by this attack on family, particularly this attack on children. And it made it harder for demographics to accuse other demographics or religions of wickedness en masse. So it started to sort of step back the workings of this society of persecution that we were talking about. And the very fact that this process can be in effect walk back shows how careful and methodical a process it was. There are a lot of social and religious changes underway, a lot of power moving around, and this is a subject covering a huge portion of the globe, but nonetheless it does seem as though the creation of the satanic witch was a conscious and methodical one. And the aim of creating such idea was all in the service of extending religious, political and legal power over more and more of Europe. Now, this is something we will keep in mind when we explore the trials in more detail next week, and in particular, approaching them through the texts, which, as mentioned, strengthened this idea of the witch, even as they were supposedly in the process of eliminating them for the good of society. So I hope you'll catch me next week, where I promise we will actually talk about witch trials. I keep teasing it, but hey, it is a complicated web. There is a reason that this is a noteworthy part of our history and why we need to make damn sure that it doesn't happen again. Because, spoiler alert, I don't believe that any of those involved were witches, but they were still killed for it, which, in a way, is worse than if they were witches. But yeah, like I said, this is a process, this is a conscious process which can be put in motion to demonise very broad parts of society so it is a process that we need to be aware of and we need to notice its traits as it's ongoing as to state the extremely obvious it is a process underway against different demographics in the world today but in the meantime though you can catch me wherever you like to find your podcasts and you can chat with me on twitter as weird horizon and on instagram as weird horizon podcast and search Weird Horizon Podcast on YouTube for episodes there, if that is how you like to consume your content. I'm working on getting more episodes up on there. It is a slow process, but I'm trying. Unfortunately, I moved, and every time you move as an adult, it seems to take longer and longer, and it took like a month. Um, But I am pretty much all settled in now, so hopefully I'll be a bit quicker on the turnaround of episodes, but In the meantime, stay spooky, my friends. Much love, 
as always. But for now, bye.